0: Last week we left out at, left off at verse 8. But for context, we're going to start at verse 1 reading. And again, we covered the first 8 verses in our study last week. Where it says, Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon the other that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the signs when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus answered them, began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name. Saying, I am he, I will receive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. Verse 9. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate. Whatever is given to you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but he who endures to the end shall be saved. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop, not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter, for in those days there will be tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had short, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. Let's pray. Father in heaven. You are the author of life. The author of time. You know the beginning, the middle, and the end. And it's hard for us to fathom an all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present God who became man walking this planet with us instructing, correcting, loving and eventually sacrificing himself greater love we couldn't know we pray Lord today that through your scripture, you continue, Father, to reveal yourself, prepare us, and this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. It's no big secret to anybody that's been in our church over 15 minutes that I like my movies. I like action movies. I like good versus evil. I like movies that will keep me on the edge of my seat. When the writer makes you care about the characters, um, you want it to end well for them. And when it doesn't, you are bothered if the writer's good, if the writing is good. And so when it doesn't end well for your favorite characters, I want a sequel. I want another movie. When Rocky loses at the end of the first movie, I want a Rocky too. When all seems lost at the end of The Empire Strikes Back, I want a return of the Jedi. And when everybody disappears, sorry, spoiler alert, in Infinity Wars, I want an end. Why? There's something in my heart that longs for new life. There's something that longs for resurrection. There's something that longs for victory. Now, here's the thing about me and movies. Uh, I probably watch too many of them because these movies, I watch more than once. I never pay for them more than once, all right? But I watch them more than once. Now, here's the thing. Even when I know the ending, some of these movies still keep me on the edge of my seat but it's different watching them the first time than watching them the second time because i know how the story ends. All right? And so when i'm watching it the first time i'm like, "Are they going to live? Are they going to die?" and i'm sort of excited. I'm kind of anxious. And uh and i'm and i'm really just sitting there and i'm and and i'm kind of nervous even for them sometimes. After i've seen it the first time and now i'm watching it the second time, there's still that excitement, but now i have confidence because I know the ending. And so I watch it confidently. Now, in the same way, God's Word gives us many stories that we can relate to. Slices of life, if you will. Men and women who, just like you and I, do not know the next chapter of their story, but we see so many of them living with faith because they have confidence in the author, because they know the ending of the story. You see, we honestly don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't know what the next five minutes brings. But we are part of a story. And if you've peeked to the end, and by the way, you have permission to do so, you see that Jesus wins. And because he wins, you win. Right? But Jesus wins. And so there's one thing about this story that we all are in agreement with, and that is that Jesus is coming back. Amen? Alright, so Jesus is coming back. That's the thing that the entire church, they're in agreement with this. The Orthodox Church of Jesus Christ, we believe that Jesus is coming back. There's no doubt as to this. The questions come up when we look at the when and the where. And the how. And people will look at even the same scriptures that we're looking at today and they may land in different areas. And that's okay. It's okay. You have to know. You have to know why you believe what you believe. I know why I believe what I believe. And that's what we're going to be presenting today. But here's the thing. And areas in the church that have been under debate for a thousand years or more carefully present it humbly, knowing that there are others that disagree. And in the essentials, what we always say is that there's unity. In the non-essentials, there's liberty. But in all things, there's charity. All things, there's love. And that's who we're called to be as the church. So that's very, very important as we look at some of this material today. Um, And so the first thing that we want to be in agreement with, on as we look at scripture is the fact that Jesus himself said that his return was imminent. All right, Jesus said that his return was imminent. It was Luke 1240 where he told the disciples, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This word imminent, all right, it's a word that unfortunately we used in hospice all too often. How much longer does mom or dad have? And as a nurse, about the best I could say sometimes is that, well, their passing was imminent. That it's going to happen, and it could be any moment, but we just don't know when. Something is on a trajectory to occur, and there's no turning back. It is imminent. It's going to happen. It's just a question of when. Jesus is going to come back. And what Jesus said to the disciples was, you all need to be ready. You need to live as if you were ready. And so in 1 Peter 4.7, Peter says it like this, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Peter the disciple believed that his coming was imminent. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who didn't even believe that Jesus was Jesus until after he was resurrected, James writes this in James 5.8, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Revelation, we're told repeatedly that the time is near. First John 2.18, listen to this. Little children, and this is John the Apostle. Little children, it is the last hour as you have heard the Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come by which we know that this is the last hour. John said that 2,000 years ago. And so what we have in Scripture is proof that there's a coming of Jesus and that it is imminent. The early church believed it. As a matter of fact, there were some points where they told everything that they had because they believed he was coming right back. Christians through the ages have believed, well, because this person is in power, because of the wars, because of the earthquakes, because of this or that, they've believed some have even been so bold, dare I say foolish, to have predicted a date. And we talked about that a little bit last week. But while His return is imminent according to Scripture, and I really do believe this is going to be one of the most interesting studies that we've looked at at this church. While His return is imminent according to Scripture, at the same time, there seems to be things that have to happen before a second coming, as we know. These things that have to happen, well, it appears as if there's going to be a single Antichrist that comes onto the scene. It appears that there will be a temple built in Jerusalem. And that there will be something that occurs in that temple that has to happen before the second coming of Christ. And so how do we reconcile the fact that we believe that it could happen any moment, but that there are other things that have to happen before it happens? How do we reconcile that? You have to understand the author. Oh, he's a great author. When you look at this book, all right, we say inspired, inerrant, infallible. That's what the Bible teaches about the Bible because it is. And when you see the cohesiveness of the way that the author writes, one device he uses is something that some of you learned in school. How many of you remember learning about foreshadowing? Do you remember that? Okay, so something happens, or something that is said early in the story that points to something that's going to happen later and greater in the story into a fulfillment. And so what we have through Scripture in the Old Testament, we have prophecies and promises. If you go to Psalm 22, if you go to Isaiah 53, if you go to the book of Micah, you see prophecies, promises of a coming Messiah. But there are also shadows and types, what they call types. Alright, when you take a look at Joseph's... the things that we see happen ultimately in Jesus' life. You see the same thing with Moses. And yes, you even see the same thing with Daniel. And so you see that through Scripture, it's either pictures or promises or prophecies in the Old Testament point to something that's going to happen in the New Testament. Really important. Because what we see with these prophecies is that something happens, but also has yet to happen. The best example of this ever are the prophecies regarding Messiah Jesus. All right, listen to these prophecies in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 11:18, all right? Because these prophecies point towards a Messiah that's going to reign and have victory. There's no ambiguity about this. Ezekiel 11:18 says the son of David will restore and purify Jerusalem, removing all the heathen idols. As it is written, they shall come there and take away all the detestable things. Isaiah 66, verse 20. And these are just a couple of them. The Messiah will gather all Jewish people from the nations and bring them back to the land with great honor upon horses and in chariots and in litters. That's Isaiah 66:20. 6, 20. And so what they understood was that there was a Messiah coming and He was coming in victory. But here's what they didn't understand. Listen. They didn't understand how to reconcile that with other verses that sounded like this, also from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah fifty three, who has believed our report? I'm not gonna ask you to turn there, and to whom has the Lord been revealed. God bless. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. You could see there and say, well, listen, there are these prophecies in Isaiah that say the Messiah is coming, He's coming in total victory, but here He says He's going to be despised and rejected by men. And now we understand that how? Well, we understand that the first coming of Messiah Jesus was as a baby in a manger. He came as a man. He lived for us, but then He died for us. And he was resurrected. We reconcile with that with what is called the second coming of Jesus Christ and that's our confidence. And so you see that something happened but yet something has yet to happen. You see that. And we see that even in the ministry and the life of Jesus where he tells the Pharisees in Luke 17, listen, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is right here. But you also understand this is the church that the kingdom of God hasn't fully come to this earth yet. The kingdom of God hasn't fully occurred yet. So that said, what we see is that the kingdom has come, and the kingdom has yet to come. And if we understand that the author gives shadows and pictures and tastes, and then an ultimate fulfillment, that's going to help us as we dig into Scripture today to understand how these events unfold. Now, if you remember again last week in Mark 13, it said that there would be wars, rumors of wars, famine, word, famine, pestilence, all right, and that these things would increase in frequency, intensity, and duration, because they were likened to birth pangs. Now, how many of you here have experienced birth pangs? No man in here better raise your hand. All right? How many of you here have experienced them? How many of you that have not experienced them and now men can raise your hands? How many of them, how many of you that have not experienced them would like to experience them? Maybe to sympathize with, with, uh, with the woman that you're with. Okay, that's great. Because you can do that now. All right, they actually have a device that has been come up. Uh, it was uh, invented by Bristol, a Bristol-based company. It's called the ultrasound baby faces labor simulator, and it's like 25 or 50 bucks. And you can pick up one of these things, and you can actually now Tiffany's laughing because when she was struggling through being pregnant and all that, I always looked at her. And I, I can't really say that I was honest about this, though I tried to come off as that, because I wanted to seem sympathetic. I was like, if I could take this from you, I would. If I could if I could carry that baby, if I could do this, I would do that. And she looked at me, she's like, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. And after I had a kidney stone, then I the kind of like, that whole thing went out the window. Frequency, intensity, and duration, like birth pangs, wars, rumors of wars, all of these things are going to be happening. We're experiencing them in the world today. Jesus promised us nothing less than this. In John 16.33, he said, In this world, you will have much tribulation because we're in a fallen world. But understand this, is that the tribulation that we are enduring because we're in a fallen world is nothing compared to the tribulation that's coming when it's God's judgment as the tribulation That's a different thing entirely. A fallen world, yes, there are trials, tribulations. Some of you are going through them right now. But there's a time coming that you don't want to be here for. It's going to be hell on earth. Now, it's been well said, and we'll be reminded of this through our end time studies, that for the believer, it's been well said that this is the only hell you'll ever experience. But for the non-Christian, this will be the only heaven they ever know. So as you think about this, the world that we're living in, this week alone in the headlines, the body of a three-year-old and a five-year-old, one found in a garbage dump, the other found in a landfill. We're looking at this world and we're saying something is wrong. Something is wrong. There's a real evil in this world. And yes, there's tribulation and there are terrible things that make us look for a savior. We're looking and we're longing. And so, like they say in Revelations, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We should be saying that. But as we're saying that, we should also be out there telling people about Him. And so now, let's look at Mark 13, verse 9. Because Jesus further instructs the disciples after saying that these are the beginnings of sorrows, He says in verses 9 through 13, But watch out for yourselves, For they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." Now, brother will betray brother to death, and father is child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated for, by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Stop right there. If you look at the book of Acts, they were brought before councils, they were brought into the synagogues, they were beaten, they were brought before rulers... So we see some of this stuff having played out, but I pose to you this, that this stuff is still playing out. But you're like, I don't see that a whole lot. No. Gang, you live in the United States of America. Sometimes our idea of persecution is, hey, when they have a bring your Bible to school day, well, you know, the kid got made fun of for bringing their Bible to school. Or I remember when we were meeting at the other school, we had a big sign on the school fence. And uh, the Freedom From Religion Foundation, because of Calvary Chapel, Delray Beach, uh, what they did was they came by, they cut the sign down, they wrote a letter to the school. While Able to have signs up at the school's. And we say, oh, that's persecution. No. No. There are some countries where if you carry this book, you will be executed and on the spot. And so there are these persecutions. We just so happen to be living in a country where we can spread the gospel freely. You can get on Facebook. You can go out into the street. You can go into Walmart. You can with a message that has the potential to save souls. You can. The question is, why aren't we? Why aren't we? W- when was the last time we told someone? Because this is what we're called to do. Okay, yes, we believe that we're living in these same times that were just described um, where father will turn against child, child will turn against father. In that hour, you won't know what to say, but the Holy Spirit will speak through you. So we're living in that time. But let's take a look at verse 14. And this is where it's going to be really interesting. when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. And it goes on, and we just read a lot of this, and we want to stop right there, because what we see here is something that appears not to have happened yet. So between the persecutions that we were talked about in verses 9 through 13, and now starting at verse 14 where it talks about the abomination of desolation, there's something that it doesn't appear that we've been through yet. And so what I would like to do is I want to read to you from Daniel. I'm not going to ask you to turn there right now. We will go there. All right, but for right... Oh, we're going there. Uh, Oh, are we going there? Um, Verse 26. It says this. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. And we'll discuss in a couple of minutes why that one week is really uh, a period of seven years. But in the middle of the week, in the middle of the seven years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice. Shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out to the desolate. So let's stop right there, and we really, really need to understand what is being said. All right. Because this abomination of desolation, we believe this to be a moment when there's going to be a literal Antichrist standing in a literal temple in Jerusalem who three and a half years into his reign performs what is called the abomination of desolation. And you're saying, Pastor, how do you get one thing out of the other? First of all, let's let's understand what an abomination is. When you hear an abomination, it is a insidious, horrid, horrific act. An abomination is normally a great sin, commonly worthy of death. That's an abomination. And the ultimate act of idolatry will happen in this temple. Now, here's where the church gets off today and we think, well, maybe it happened. Because some believe that this abomination of desolation happened around 170 B.C., when a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, who hated the Jews, stood in the middle of the temple, and because he hated the Jews, he sacrificed a pig on the altar. And so some believe that was the abomination of desolation. It can't be. And here's why. Now, it can point to what's going to happen, but that's not the abomination of desolation. Here's why it's not. Because Jesus said it was something that was supposed to happen, that was going to happen. This happened 170 years before that. Okay, so it can't be that. Some say that the abomination of desolation was that moment in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. But according to our knowledge, there wasn't a an moment, and it doesn't fit the timeline. So here's the problem. You have something that they say is going to happen that has not happened yet. All right? Now, here's where it gets even more complex. Because after the temple is destroyed, the children of Israel do not have a strong presence. They don't have a strong presence in this area in Jerusalem. So, how is the temple going to be rebuilt? And if you ask how the temple is going to be rebuilt, who's going to rebuild it? From AD 70. You don't even have the potential to rebuild that temple until 1948. Then something happens in 1948, which is unlike anything that the world has ever seen regarding the nation of Israel. Israel at that moment in 1948 is again recognized as a nation, given their land, they're recognized as a state in 1948. Do you understand that this has to happen in order for that temple to ultimately be rebuilt? But there is no hope of that temple being rebuilt until 1948. Now, that parcel of land, a temple could be built on. We believe what's going to happen is that there's going to be, again, a literal Antichrist that will come after the rapture. And we're going to get to that in a moment. We're going to get to that in a moment. But as of October 27, 2019, there is no temple for the abomination of desolation to occur. As of this moment, October 27, 2019, We do not appear to know who the Antichrist is. But that does not mean he can't be walking this earth right now. And so how do we say that the coming of Christ is imminent, and yet there's something that has to occur that hasn't occurred yet? I'm glad you asked, because it's a great question. To answer it, let's turn in our Bibles over to the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's chapter 4. And it's here we're going to be introduced to an event in the church that is called the rapture. So, it's And this is Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica. In verse 13 he says, "...but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope." For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend, listen, for the Lord Himself, verse 16, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Stop right there. Listen. We're undergoing tribulation because we're in a fallen world. But understand this. Why would God keep His children here when He was going to enact judgment on this earth? And so we believe that there's an event where the church is going to be caught up with Christ in the sky. This is called the rapture. And we take a look and we say, I find that so... There's nothing figurative about the speech that Paul is writing with. It's literal. A catching up. All right. Now, is the word rapture in Scripture? No. But it says here plainly, that's the Latin, that word, to be caught up in rapture. But I guess it's a better word, rapture, that we use in the church than if they wanted to call it the ketchup. You'd say, what are you waiting for in the church? We're waiting for the catch-up. No, it doesn't work good. But we're waiting to be caught up, snatched away, delivered, from this judgment that's coming. This is called the rapture. Now, with the rapture, you could, I'm sure, say, well, you know what, it's going to usher in chaos, yes? So, during this event, there's going to be chaos. This chaos is necessary for the world to embrace the one that will come to be known as the Antichrist. Now, think of this for a second. If you were to think of the rapture and that it could happen at any moment, where do you want to be and what are you doing? Yeah. I made a list of some things I don't want to be found doing. (laughs) And just because I say I don't want to be found doing this stuff doesn't mean that I do it. But we don't want to be found looking at porn. Okay, we don't want to be found doing that. Could you imagine that if you were snatched up and you were standing with Jesus, you are like, Hey, (laughs) good to see you. So glad you're here. I don't want to be cursing out someone on I-95 when I get raptured. I don't want to be checking out a married coworker when I get raptured. Checking out a married coworker. I don't want to be cheating on my taxes. I don't want to be gossiping. I do not want to be lying. I don't want to be found mid theft when he comes back. I don't want to be watching a Miami Dolphins game when he comes back. Sorry. But I really don't. Um, <laughs> I don't want to be listening to old Kanye West when he comes back. All right? Here's what I would like to be found doing when he comes back. I would love to be doing this. I would love it if Jesus came back and I was doing this. That would be epic to me. I would love to be leading a Bible study. I would love to be praying when he comes back. I would love to be um, pouring into my family spending quality time with my family when he comes back. I'd love to be giving someone a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus when he comes back. I'd love to be worshiping and praising when he comes back. I would love to be listening to new Kanye West when he comes back. That would be kind of cool. That might be kind of epic. All right. So there are certain things that we want to be doing and certain things. And so right now, our application, especially when we consider the rapture, if we believe in... Well... Disappears. Somebody performing surgery. Forget about the highways. Forget about the roadways during this time. It's going to usher in chaos. This event called the rapture. And that is going to start a seven-year period that is called the tribulation, where the world is going to be looking for answers. The world's going to be looking for the answers. Now, how do we know that the Antichrist comes after the rapture? That's another great question. I'm so glad you asked. Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. It's chapter 2. I hope you're at least finding this stuff interesting. 2 Thessalonians 2 says this. It says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us as though the day of Christ deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin, the man of sin, The Antichrist is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits, listen, as God, in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Verse 5. Do not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, Paul says, and now you know what is restraining. Listen. And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Stop right there. Who's doing the restraining of the Antichrist? The Holy Spirit. How's he doing it? Through you! Why isn't the Antichrist rising right now? He can't. You're here. The church is here. When the church is gone, hell breaks loose. Hell breaks loose. Does this make sense? And now we're saying, okay, well, I get this pastor. I'm, 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 I'm seeing it with my own eyes. I'm looking at it. And you know, there's no figurative language here. It all seems to be very literal. But this whole thing with the seven years and the three and a half years, where do you get that? That's a great question. I'm so glad you asked. Would you please now turn with me from 2 Thessalonians over to Daniel 9. Now in the first couple of verses of Daniel 9, here's what we see. Daniel was among those that were taken into captivity when the king of Babylon conquered the children of Israel, power transferred from Babylon to the Medes and Persians. And now, as Daniel realizes through his own study of Scripture, they're coming to an end of a 70-year period of exile. What we see in the first couple of verses, in chapter 9, it says, In the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of the reign, I, Daniel, understood by the, book, by the books the numbers of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years into the desolations of Jerusalem. Stop right there. And because right there Daniel recognizes that they're coming to the end of the 70-year exile, he prays to God. He confesses in verses three through 10 he confesses the sins of the people and he asks of Jerusalem and Judah and this is where Daniel is granted a vision of what is called the 70 weeks. this listen, make no mistake the 70 weeks that we're about to study is the backbone of Bible prophecy It's the backbone of Bible prophecy and so we see in verse 24 Skip down to 24. Where it's revealed to him, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. To finish the trans, listen to this, listen to this language, please. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Stop right there. The beginning of this prophecy, we have to understand at the outset, this is a prophecy regarding the children of Israel. So it's to Israel, for Israel. And it starts off in verse 24 with saying 70 weeks. Better translations would say 70 sevens. 70 periods of seven. What's going to happen in these 70 periods of seven? A whole lot is right. 70 periods of seven years, 490 years. Most scholars agree. 490 years are determined for your people to finish the transgression to make an end of sins. Listen to these words finish the transgression to make an end of sins, reconciliation for iniquity. Matthew 18. It's Peter having a discussion with Jesus. And Peter says, Regarding forgiveness, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brothers? Seven? Jesus says, uh-uh, you're off a little bit. Seventy times seven. Seventy times seven. What is he talking about? The perfect forgiveness of God. It's not really so much the number that sticks out as it is the uh, 70 times seven. That whole thing, it's going to be perfect forgiveness that happens at the end of this 490 years. All right? And so there's this... 70 times 7, there's the 70 weeks that are determined, uh, and it has everything to do when the relationship with Israel will be completely restored. So again, this is to Israel, for Israel, and just stay with me for a second. Alright, so they're determined for the people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most Holy Verse 25 says this, "...know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks." Seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall... Even in troublesome times, what on earth is he saying? There's going to be seven weeks, there's going to be 62 weeks. Well, the seven weeks, the first seven weeks is a period of that the children of Israel were in captivity. So that's the time that they were in captivity. That's the time that they're about to be released from. And that time is believed to have begun, that period of 70, is believed to have begun the moment that Nehemiah was commissioned to build the wall, to rebuild Jerusalem. So that's the first seven weeks. But then there's the other 62 weeks. And when you've got the seven weeks, so that seven weeks is 70 years, and then you have 62 weeks, that's another 434 years. From the time that Jerusalem was rebuilt until what? What significant event happens at that time? Well, at the end of that 62 weeks that 434 years, with the Babylonian calendar, leap years taken into consideration, Sir Robert Anderson, who over a century ago wrote a book called The Coming Prince, brought the date to where the Anointed One, Jesus Christ, would be cut off um, as he rode into Jerusalem for Passover. So this time period uh, that is discussed is a time period where the Messiah will... And so what we have is we have the first... uh, As he says here, it says there shall be seven weeks and then 62 weeks. So that brings us to 69. And then you would say, well, okay, well, uh, you know, I'm having a little bit of trouble following that, but where's the 70th week? Where's the 70th week? What happens between week 69 and week 70? Where is it? That's what we call the church age. That's the age of the church. It's a time when there was no specific deference given to the children of Israel. This was not about Israel during this time called the church age. But after after Jesus raptures his church, when Jesus raptures his church, that will start a seven-year period where the Jews will again have the opportunity to come to Messiah Jesus, and that will be the last of the seven years. In the middle of that seven years, it's believed in three and a half years through that the Antichrist will sit on the throne in the middle of the temple after proclaiming to bring peace. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week, about the Antichrist and all that. But three and a half years into his reign, he will sit in the middle of the temple Erect an idol to himself, proclaim to be God, and then that will be the beginning of great tribulation. We see this period referred to in Revelation 11 and Revelation 12, where it talks about 42 months and 1,200, and I think either 60 days or 1,280 days—I get my math wrong—but um, that's going to happen because here's what Israel did. All right, when Israel cut off the Messiah. It's kind of like they hit the pause button. And in that pause button, in that paused amount of time, that's the mystery that the New Testament refers to as the church age, where the gospel has been made available to every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. But after Messiah Jesus raptures his church, that's going to be the moment where the children of Israel, there will be a great revival, and there will be a great coming to the Lord at that time. Now, Jesus also kind of infers this, and I'll show you how. If you want to turn, this is going to be the last place that we look at today, in your Bibles, to Luke chapter 4. It's Luke chapter 4, and this is Jesus' first sermon, it's believed to be, And he's in the synagogue, and we'll start reading at verse 16. It says, so he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, Jesus. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Stop right there. Why is this significant? Because as Jesus reads the prophecy, He leaves something out. He leaves out the rest. Because right there, he's quoting Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. But if you listen to this, as we read from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus got all that right, but he must have forgot this part that said, and the day of vengeance of our God. Why does he cut it off where he does in the prophecy? Well, because Jesus' presence ushers in the church age. Here's the proof. The captives are still being set free. Liberty is still possible. God's vengeance has not been exacted upon the earth yet because we're living in this miraculous time called the church age where he can heal the brokenhearted. Anybody struggling with depression? Anybody struggling with grief? Anybody struggling with hopelessness? He came to heal the brokenhearted. That started with Jesus and it continues through His church. He came to proclaim liberty to the captives. you have any strongholds that are in your life right now? Whether it be pornography or gambling or lust of any kind or pain medications or alcohol. He came to proclaim liberty to the captives. And now he continues to do so through you, his church, until the moment that the church is snatched up, raptured away, hell breaks loose on earth, enter the Antichrist. But there's still time. Why? Because you're still here. We still have life. We still have breath. You've still been given the good news so that you can go outside to somebody that doesn't have the good news and go tell them. Because there's a time of tribulation coming. You will not be here for it if you have repented of your sins and if you've called Jesus Christ your Lord. But even then, there will be a coming to Christ. Even then. I want to close you with a story about two men. These two men were discussing why it is that you cannot see the stars by day. Than by night. Why then cannot these mighty lamps be seen by day? One man maintained that they could be seen if one went far enough down into a well. The other denied the proposition, but permitted himself to be lowered into the well. After he had been lowered a certain distance, he was asked if he could see the stars, and he said no. Still farther down, the same question was asked with the same answer. But when he had been lowered to a great depth, then looking up toward the heavens, he said he was able to see the stars. Go down deep enough into a well and you can see the stars by day. Listen, there are some right now that are in a very dark period of their life. And you, as the church, are the light because Jesus said, This will so let your light shine before man that they may see your good works while you're still here. There's still light, no matter how dark what somebody is going through is. We still have responsibility, and I pray to God that there's an urgency. If you have questions about the stuff, I know we got a little bit in-depth today, so if there are questions about it, please feel free to text me. We're also going to have a little bit of a Q&A after the session next week. Next week, you're saying, when are we going to get to Revelation and some of that stuff? That will be next week. Week. Let's pray, Father in heaven. Thank you again. Thank you, Lord, uh, that we are counted as your children. And being your children, Lord, we've been given responsibility. We pray to be increasingly attentive. Your coming is imminent, and so there is urgency. Father, if there are those that are in this room that do not have an urgency to let their loved ones, to let a perfect stranger know about who you are, I pray, Father, that you do something. You touch their heart in the way that only you can. Impress upon them that they have been a recipient of the most important message that a human being could know. Please let us be your representatives. Let us be your heralds. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.